Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. It's good to have you back here again. We are done with our former series we called Prophecy and Plagiarism. It was a four-parter talking about the trajectory of modern Ellen White studies that culminated in the final two episodes of that series, which focused on Walter Ray, his turbulent year, 1980, and the publication of his book, The White Lie. Notice I didn't tell you what this episode was called, because very creatively, I've decided to just call it 1980. Yeah, I know, it's very original. Well, basically, I want to begin with the claim that 1980 was the most impactful year in the making of the modern Seventh-day Adventist church. And I know that's a rather nebulous claim. I was trying to work on, like, how how exactly do I say what I'm trying to say here in a way that doesn't, uh, I'm not claiming too much, but it's not also so heavily qualified. You know, it's like the best baseball player who ever lived who was born on May 11th, 1920, and won the World Series in 1980. You know, you know what I mean? Like, obviously, that'd be impossible. He'd be 60 years old. But but you know what I mean? Like, where it's so so heavily qualified that it's it's like, of course, that person holds the record. It sounds so much grander and than it, than it really is when you start to think about it. Uh, so anyways, I don't want to get too hung up on the claim. My point is just that 1980 was a hugely influential year in more modern, more recent Avenus history, just hugely influential year. And the bit about the, the making of the modern Seventh-day Adventist churches, because so much of what Avenus experience today, as far as their organizational church is concerned, is as a result of things that happened in 1980. And we're going to go through some of those things today. Now, it is a risky claim. It's risky for several reasons. I need to give a couple disclaimers here first. Of course, there are no fixed points in history. There's no fixed points in a river. You can't just pick one year and say, this is the year everything happened. Why? Because, well, like just like the river, it keeps flowing. So time keeps flowing. The things that happened in 1980 were not things that started in 1980. They are the result of processes that began long before 1980 and continued long after 1980, right? We've seen how William Peterson's Spectrum article kicked off this new era of studying Ella White and her sources. This was a precursor to Walter Ray's, let's say, more public criticisms. And this began back in 1970. Of course, this didn't begin in 1980. It began years and years and years before. So we have to be careful when we say, well, 1980 gets the credit for something that began a long time ago. Okay. All right, I don't want to dwell on that too much. Uh, but the second reason I want to bring up is that 1980 doesn't contain completed stories either. Walter Ray's Glendale meeting in January of 1980, the LA Times article that came out in October, which we talked about in the past two episodes, this occurred in 1980. So this is one of the reasons why I'm saying 1980 was a pivotal year. Yet Ray's book, The White Lie, happened in 1982. Didn't all happen in 1980, right? And the, the book might arguably be the most profound contribution that he made, if you want to call it a contribution, and uh, it didn't happen in 1980. So please understand, I'm, I'm doing what we must do and, uh, and just kind of using 1980 as saying it's a pivotal year, but I you know, understand that it kind of reaches its arms out and hugs 
some of the events that happened before and after it. Or to put it another way, of all the things that happened, say, from uh, the late 1960s until present, of all those years, 1980 is, I think, has a claim for being the most pivotal of all those years. We cannot make use of our history with endless footnotes and caveats, right? So I'm just oversimplifying things a little bit for the sake of telling a story to say that 1980 was the pivotal year in the making of the modern Adventist church. Okay, obviously, uh, why do I make that claim? I'm talking about Walter Ray, as I mentioned, his claims of plagiarism going public in 1980. That set something in motion that has never stopped. He has since passed away, of course, but there are many, many, many critics who are repeating, recycling, or building upon his claims of plagiarism, including Seventh-day Adventists. Okay, this is what, what makes him interesting is that he goes public as a Seventh-day Adventist, saying that she plagiarized. And I, I, he's not the first one, of course, to ever say that she plagiarized. But uh, in terms of the, the modern era of the Adventist church, putting Canterbury aside, uh, he has, he's definitely started something. And it began, I think, in 1980. Uh, I'm also, of course, talking about the Ford saga, the Desmond Ford saga as the crucial Glacier View meeting happened in August 1980. Ray, I think, represents a, a festering questions regarding Ellen White and her role in the church. Ford represents a questioning of some historic Adventist interpretations and a desire to refocus Adventism on what he saw as the gospel. Ford and Ray, their, their impact has, I think, been an earthquake in the church. Although, let's just be honest here, I think largely an earthquake in the English-speaking minority of the church. I don't really know what their impact has been outside of the English-speaking sections of the church. I'm sure, of course, their writings have been translated and they had some influence elsewhere. But if you happen to know, I would love to know. Drop me a note. Um, but anyways, this, this episode is not about Ray or Ford. It's about a third thing that happened in 1980 that continues to shape the Adventist church the 1980 General Conference session, and how it led to the adoption of a statement of 27 fundamental beliefs. So I'm focused on 1980 for these three reasons. Ford, Ray, the General Conference session, which brought us this new and updated version of the 27 fundamental beliefs. However, honorable mention does go to Donald Davenport's Ponzi scheme, which, while it did not officially break until he declared bank bankruptcy in 1981, it was already crumbling in 1980. People noticed that it was crumbling. Um, and, uh, and anyway, so I'll just kind of give him an honorable mention. It's close enough. And so that's the subject of this Adventist History Extra episode, which is supposed to have come out by now. <laughs> I've, I've written most of it, and I'm about to take a trip for a couple weeks here. So I was really, really hustling to get that episode done, to get it out. I wanted to be able to tell you it's out. Um, but... It'll have to wait until I get back from the trip because even though I could record it the way that it is, it's not, I know I could do better. I know I could add some more information if I just had more time to, uh, to consult a few more sources and, and people who were present. Uh, I want to just, I want to do it a little bit better. So I'm not going to release it yet. Of course, if you're listening to this, I don't know, months after I recorded it, then it probably already is out. And of course, you can uh, get access to it 
uh, by becoming a patron on patreon.com or by subscribing to the Avenus History Extra podcast on our website, avenushistoryproject.org. Those are the two places to go to get access to Avenus History Extra. Uh, but anyways, no more about that. We've covered Ray, Walter Ray, in our last two episodes. I've got Davenport over at Avenus History Extra. We're talking about Ford in our next episode. So let's talk about the 1980 General Conference session in Dallas. Now, in the lead up to the session, the Avenus Review began publishing two series of articles. One we're going to talk about this time, and that was a 13-part series on the Avenus Church and how it operates by a former General Conference Vice President, Walter Beach. The second series wasn't so much uh, a, a series per se than it was various articles on a theme, and that theme was defending the Avenus teaching on 1844 in the Heavenly Sanctuary. The first series helped prepare the church for the 1980 General Conference session. The second series helped prepare the church for Glacier View. Walter Beach's articles began just as Neil Wilson was assuming the presidency of the church following Walt Robert H. Pearson's abrupt resignation due to health concerns. Beach's articles were really a primer on Avenus organization, mission, and identity. He also answered some questions people uh, undoubtedly were, were, were asking in defense of the organization. But Beach wasn't just rehearsing the standard Adventist idea on these topics. He was quietly building a case, really, for the agenda of the 1980 General Conference session. 1980 wasn't just a year that Ford and Ray and Davenport would shake the church. It was the year in which church leadership under a new General Conference president resolved to put their foot down on what they saw as some disturbing trends going on in the church. Now, as delegates and visitors arrived in Dallas for the session, the, this is the first session, by the way, it seems, where delegates had padded chairs. So that may explain their good mood. Two statements from former GC presidents greeted them in a special edition of the Avenus Review. The titles of Ruben Figure and Robert Pearson's articles or their statements well reflected, I would say, their administrations. Figure's greeting to the delegates was called A Loving United People, and Pearson's was titled No Uncertainty with God. <laughs> however, however differently they began, they both ended in roughly the same place. Figure closed by calling on Avenus to quote, loyally remain on the firm foundation of God's truth, end quote. And Pearson ended his by saying, quote, thank God for the book of certainty, the Bible. Thank God for a savior who never changes. Thank God for the gift of certainty, the spirit of prophecy. There is no uncertainty with God, end quote. Whew. Neil Wilson, in office for just over a year by the time the session took place, took a different approach and expressed his desire in his greeting to the delegates for revival. Who could argue with that? Wilson's opening sermon was more revealing. Quote, Since 1888, the Lord has been trying to get us headed for our heavenly home. End quote. Not since 1844, but since 1888, God has been trying to take Avenus home. Sometimes I wonder if 1888 represents a kind of second founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, because a lot of movements or groups justify their existence based on how they interpret 1888 
and the whole righteousness by faith message of Jones and Wagner. At least they seem more preoccupied with 1888 than 1844. In any case, Wilson outlined 10 areas he thought the church needed to place emphasis, and I'm going to let you know what all 10 of these are, so buckle in. First, quote, we need a clarification and a true understanding of mission. The further removed we become from our pioneers, the less we seem to sense the true reason for our existence, end quote. The General Conference president is here. He's, he's voicing the question that has, I think, become very common for Adventists to ask today. Why are we here? Why are we here? And I think he captured that question very, very well. The further removed we become from our pioneers, the less we seem to sense the true reason for our existence. In other words, the further we travel from Ellen White, from 1844, from 1888, the further that gets behind us in the rear view mirror, the less, less of a hold we have on our identity as Seventh-day Adventists. Who are we? What are we still doing here? I think he nailed that question. That's a good question. Second, Wilson noted that there, quote, are indications that we are not certain about our message, end quote. As Wilson saw it, quote, God has raised up a people whose singular objective and global assignment is to proclaim to the whole world the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, end quote. Now, I think that's a really interesting statement. What does it mean to be a Seventh-day Adventist? As Wilson says in this statement, it is a global assignment to preach the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's Matthew 28, right? In the context of the three angels' message of Revelation 14. So, to Neil Wilson, the Adventist message is the great commission to go into all the world and disciple and baptize and all that. It's Matthew 28 plus Revelation 14. That's the Adventist message. And I think that'd be a fun conversation to have with some people sometime. How do, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's what it means to be an Adventist? I know the uh, podcasters over at Seeking What They Sought, shout out to them, just uh, completed a series on, a, on what is a Seventh-day Adventist. And they asked a bunch of people, including Ted Wilson, Neil Wilson's son, what, uh, what they thought a Seventh-day Adventist was. But I thought Neil Wilson here had a really concise answer. It's Matthew 28 plus Revelation 14. Oh, that'd be a fun thing to talk about. Anyways, Wilson noted that a certain Church of Christ magazine called The Lookout had asked a question, quote, will the real Seventh-day Adventist please stand up, end quote. Now, this article, the series of articles, really, had bothered Wilson because it suggested that Adventists weren't united. Worse, that Adventists speak out of both sides of their mouths. As the author of these articles in The Lookout put it, quote, Adventists themselves speak with a divided voice. They do not agree among themselves particularly on the heart of the gospel, the doctrine of salvation, end quote. This author picked up on Jeffrey Paxton's book. Paxton, you will recall, was an Anglican friend of Brinsmead who wrote extensively on Adventism. I shouldn't say he wrote extensively, like he wrote a ton of books. He wrote his book, The Shaking of Adventism, and spoke on many Adventist campuses uh, during the 1970s. But anyways, um, so this author in The Lookout echoes Paxton's argument that there are really two theologies at work, at least in Anglo-Adventism. You have the gospel-oriented Adventists and the traditional legalistic Adventists. And this, by the way, 
I, I think is a very outdated way of dividing up Seventh-day Adventists, but it is still in favor among, well, I guess if you're one of those gospel-oriented Adventists, you're going to tend to look at everybody else as a, a, a traditional legalistic Adventist or maybe a ultra-liberal Adventist, like those are your three categories. Uh, anyways, there's, there's a number of ways to divide up Adventists and what camps or tribes they fall into, but... Uh, this author in the Lookout borrowed Paxton's basic taxonomy of Adventism as divided up between legalists and gospel-oriented Adventists. That makes it really clear, really easy to choose what side you want to be on, doesn't it? Neil Wilson, uh, well, he was hardly the only one to get worked up by these articles. After all, a flood of letters arrived for the editor of the Lookout. So much so. And by the way, this began as just the Lookout doing what so many other conservative Christian magazines were doing, you know, who it is a cult? We're going to do a series on Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, an Adventist, right? <laughs> and so this was just a, a series. I don't think that they thought that much about it, just kind of repeating the normal stuff about these different groups. And, um, of course, Adventists are very sensitive to being called a cult, especially after questions on doctrine. They've, they've done so much to avoid that label. Um, but anyways, just so many letters arrived at the lookout that the author of the article smelled the conspiracy. Quote, The nature and contents of the barrage of letters received by the lookout make one wonder whether the Seventh-day Adventists have a policy of intimidation towards writers and editors who disagree with them. End quote. I mean, it's possible. Or, or you just called a bunch of people a cult and that upsets them. That could be another reason why so many letters arrived, you think. Now, Adventists weren't divided, Wilson argued. Any sense of division was the result of what he considered to be troublemakers in the church trying to shake the pillars of the faith. He explained that Adventist theology ought to be different from other Christians. Otherwise, why be an Adventist? You know, we're not going to apologize because we believe things differently from other Christians. That's the whole point. The Baptists wouldn't exist if they didn't believe some things different than the Catholics and so on. Wilson's third area of emphasis in his opening sermon at the 1980 GC session was for evangelism. Not much to say about that. Of course, I think every general conference president has said that we need to have more emphasis on evangelism. Fourth, Wilson wanted to see a revival of piety in Adventist homes, such as uh, he wanted to see families opening the Sabbath together. And I think, again, that's not uh, maybe a super controversial thing. That's a That's a pretty standard thing. You want to see Adventism not just in the church, but you want to see it in the home. Fifth, Wilson said he wants to include more women in church leadership. Yep, you heard that right. He said he had written a memo to leaders in the general conference, I guess, asking for names of, quote, qualified women who could be considered for elected leadership posts in the general conference. I received very few suggestions, end quote. Ouch. Well, Wilson was undeterred. He, he could have just said, well, you know, I tried, but no one really knew of any women who were qualified. He could have left it at that. But he said he then appealed to union and conference leaders to, quote, consider women along with men for positions of responsibility, end quote. And the reason why he would do that is that if conferences would elect or hire women, to, for positions of responsibility, then they would put in some years of service there. They would go up to the union, right? They would get noticed by the general conference. And then 
maybe not Wilson's administration, but but some future administration would then be able to to hire them as Wilson intended. He was wanting to see this uh, women get into the pipeline of leadership. And so that's why he appeals to conferences and unions. Now, beyond administrative posts, Wilson wanted women involved in evangelism and other areas of the church as well. Sixth, Wilson wanted to reform Adventist education. He called Christian education, that's often how Adventists refer to Adventist education as Christian education. He called it so important that it was, quote, not a matter of option, it is a mandate, it is a church doctrine, end quote. That's how badly Neil Wilson wanted to see Adventists send their kids to Adventist schools. Neil Wilson admitted that there were problems, namely the age-old fear of worldliness seeping in through professors who are being educated at non-Avenist universities. But nevertheless, he saw the Avenist school system as absolutely vital to the well-being of the church. Seventh, in his list of priorities, Neil Wilson wanted to see more progress in the area of race relations in the church. Quote, to grant this kind of opportunity and responsibility requires a great deal of trust, which has always been a prerequisite to unity. It is neither necessary nor wise to impose a single form of church life on all ethnic and cultural groups. We should not allow a climate to exist that breeds in human hearts feelings of uncertainty about belonging. End quote. In other words, we are going to have to trust each other if we are going to put in, while well, he didn't single out any one race, I think we can guess that <laughs> the biggest concern here is for African-Americans. We're going to have to put them in positions of responsibility, and that requires trust. We cannot afford a church that ha that where, let's say, African-American Adventists don't really feel like they belong. That's what Neil Wilson is saying. He called for accommodations to be made, as he put it, for minorities in the church to have, quote, appropriate degrees of freedom for self-direction and self-fulfillment, end quote, which sounds like he supports regional conferences, maybe more. Eighth, President Wilson wanted more lay people, that is, non-clergy members, to get involved with the church. He singled out several ministries, several media ministries that were doing great work and he wanted to see more lay people getting involved with, like Faith for Today, It Is Written, and Voice of Prophecy. Ninth, Wilson wanted the church to discover, quote, a desperately needed breakthrough, end quote, and how to reach secular people. Tenth, finally, Wilson put his toes in the water on this one. He began by very carefully explaining that church policies needed to change, especially as it concerned how the church spent money. He felt the church was spending money very inefficiently. Then he suggested that church leaders, or excuse me, that the church needed leaders who were better at leadership. He also talked about reorganizing certain aspects of the church. Quote, surely we have learned some lessons during the past 79 years since the 1901 General Conference reorganization. End quote. In other words, you know, look, we, we last had this major reorganization of the General Conference in 1901. Have, you know, was, is it perfect? 
the world hasn't really changed in any way that necessitates any reorganization. You know, he's, 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 I think he's making a really interesting argument there. <laughs> it's been 79 years since the last time we had this huge reorganization. Surely we've learned something since then of how to do something more efficiently uh, or to organize more for a more effective mission. Now, Wilson was vague on what he was actually recommending here, but he promised that his recommendations to the General Conference would sound revolutionary but that it was a necessary revolution. Now, from Wilson's 10 points, you get a good sense, I think, of who he was, or at least his leadership style of what his priorities were. He was, I think, a traditional Adventist at heart, but he was also a realist, and he was also a bit of a reformer, as we've noticed. Just before the session, Neil was brutally honest that, quote, the productivity of incumbents must be carefully examined to determine whether they should continue in office or be replaced. Leadership needs to lead, end quote. And I think that sums up how he feels about so many people in positions of responsibility in the church. Um, maybe they've been in that office for a long time, and of course we're treating them with grace because they're fellow believers, but... You know, for Neil, it's like, hey, you, you got to be effective. There, there's got to be an evaluation of how well you're running your office. The church is getting bigger and bigger. It's dealing with millions and millions of dollars. We've got to have people who know how to lead in these positions of responsibility. Someone who knew Neil Wilson reasonably well once told me that he could have been the CEO of a major corporation. Such were Neil Wilson's leadership gifts. And clearly, he was trying to encourage greater leadership ability in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. By 1980, I think the cracks in the Adventist Church, which we recognize today, were present. Struggling schools, theological division, institutionalism, division over what the gospel is, and, uh, and so on. Nevertheless, I think these problems were perhaps masked by the church's numerical success. The church had doubled in size since Robert H. Pearson had become president in 1966. Adventist leaders today often wring their hands over the attrition rate because the church loses about four to five members for every 10 members it brings in. But the attrition rate in 1980 wasn't much better. It was about 35 to 40%. Growth in North America dramatically slowed by the late 1970s, a trend, of course, which has continued comparative or, excuse me, relative to the rest of the world church. Total membership then was over 3 million with about 250,000 joining the church every year. Today, it's about a million joining the church every year. And of course, losing 40 to 50% of those, excuse me, not losing 40 to 50% of the million who joined, but just losing, uh, I guess, the equivalent of 40 to 50% from other sectors. It could be somebody who's been a member for 30 years who leaves the same year we baptize a million. You understand what I'm saying? Like the net gain, I guess I should put it, is uh, 40, 50% less than uh, what we bring in. Anyways, anyways, uh, back then the inter-American division was the biggest division by membership, followed closely by North America and then South America. Today, the picture is, shall we say, different. It's not inter-America or South America where we have the most members, it is the East Central Africa Division, followed by the Southern Africa Indian Ocean Division, 
And then, then in third place, the Inter-American Division. Yet then, as now, no division contributed financially and institutionally to the denomination like North America. So North America kind of occupies this special place where it has far more influence than the number of members uh, indicates that it should have. And part of that is financial. Part of that, I think, is historical. Part of that is institutional. We have the General Conference in North America and, uh, and, and so much history here. This is the, the cradle of Adventism on this continent, and that plays a role, I think, as well. So while Adventists in the, at the present maybe grumble about the tithe system of the church and how few funds it often leaves for local churches, Ken Emerson, the GC treasurer, called it, quote, a splendid denominational system of finance, end quote. Emerson and his report to the delegates told them, quote, as the church is united into one great world fellowship, the denomination's plan of finance provides for the gathering of funds into the general conference and then reappropriating them to the world field as equitably as possible in the light of changing world conditions and the most urgent needs of the hour, end quote. In other words, Emerson, the GC treasurer, understood the financial system of the church as to gather up as much money as is possible to the general conference so that the general conference can then best distribute those monies as needed around the world. And of course, since most of the growth is happening outside of North America, in a sense, many of those monies are not coming back to North America, right? Uh, but this was the this was the model. It is the general conference as the great storehouse, I guess you could put it. Of course, this, the, the intention wasn't that local churches should suffer or should, you know, in any way, shape, or form. The idea was that uh, tithe largely is for the world church, although much of that comes back in the form of the pastor who's paid with tithe, uh, and local offerings are for the local church. So is it, you know, if we have financial struggles for local churches today, it's, you know, tell your members to... <laughs> to pay a more faithful offering to the local church. The tithe is, uh, it doesn't belong to them. Uh, every congregation, of course, was expected to sacrifice much of their income for the sake of the overall movement. It was always about the overall movement. It was never about a local church enriching itself or, or extending its empire or anything like that. And the tithing system mostly made sure that that would be the case. Now, earlier I talked about Walter Beach's review articles in the run-up to the 1980 General Conference session. He was, I said, preparing the Adventist public for the session. Now, Beach did this in part by explaining why the denomination needed a church manual. As he put it, quote, year after year in the history of our church, problems of church polity, I always love that word, and practice have risen. Solutions have been proposed, many of which are now incorporated in the manual, end quote. In other words, the church manual embodies the tradition and wisdom of the church on the practical matters of church organization. Beach spoke admirably of his father, who was a church elder and who had clung to John Loughborough's unofficial church manual. Loughborough had published his own church manual long before there was an official church manual to help churches, you know, and help officers know what they should be doing and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, Beach said, quote, My father, for 50 years, a church elder, cherished this booklet, deviating from it barely an inch, end quote. Well, 
1926, James McElhaney, the future General Conference president, began working on a church manual that was published in 1932 as the first official church manual of the denomination. Written during a golden age of Adventist mission, I'm sure the manual helped to standardize church organization wherever it went around the world. McElhaney's manual came with an updated list of 22 fundamental beliefs. I say updated because it was updated from Uriah Smith's 1872 list of beliefs. Now, in uh, for McElhaney's manual, the list he didn't write the list of beliefs. They were written largely by F.M. Wilcox, who was then editor of the Adventist Review. And these two 28 fundamental beliefs, Wilcox's 22 fundamental beliefs, he didn't write them entirely. He was just, a, I think, a major author of them. Uh, they were never formally voted on, to my knowledge, reviewed or endorsed by the broader Adventist church, except the fact that they appeared in the manual and the manual was adopted. And so I guess the list of beliefs inside were baptized with it. But they acquired official status for members by virtue of being in the manual. And that's a really interesting way to, I guess, stumble upon a doctrinal statement. And I, I think the, the interest in this does not wane when we're going to be talking about how these beliefs were voted upon in, in 1980. Uh, it, it wasn't a separate committee. This is the astounding thing, okay? This is the astounding thing. Uriah Smith wrote his 1872 beliefs just as a private member of the church. He was, also, of course, also editor of the review, but he didn't write it in that capacity. He didn't intend for them to be normative. He just thought they might be helpful to somebody to know what Adventists believe, to have it in writing and all that. And uh, Wilcox updated that list of beliefs. And again, there's no special committee here. There's no big effort. What do we believe as Seventh-day Adventists? You know, let's let's codify it. Let's sit down and study this. It didn't happen. It's just, hey, you know, we 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 could we could stick these in the manual and uh and and be helpful because these beliefs had previously been stuck in uh in yearbooks, in Adventist yearbooks, and now they're in the manual. Okay, well, how do the how do Wilcox's 1931 beliefs differ from Uriah Smith's 1872 beliefs? What what was updated? Perhaps the biggest change came to the first belief, which introduced the word Trinity for the first time. Uh, Uriah Smith certainly would not be the one to use that word. Wilcox also cut some of Uriah Smith's beliefs concerning the importance of Bible prophecy. Now that sounds worse than. It really was. It wasn't that, you know, oh, we don't believe the little horn is a papacy anymore. No, it was just that some of Uriah Smith's fundamental beliefs, uh, his fundamental principles were like, oh, you know, Bible prophecy, this, that, and the other it is important. And, and for Wilcox, it's, you know, we need specific statements here, not just we believe in the importance of Bible prophecy, that kind of stuff. Uh, Smith's beliefs included one, which, by the way, stated that the papacy had changed the Sabbath. Wilcox cut that out. Wilcox developed the doctrine of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment to span three of his 22 fundamental beliefs. Wilcox also added beliefs about abstaining from alcohol and tobacco and the importance of paying tithe. Overall, Wilcox moved away from Uriah Smith on prophecy and towards lifestyle issues, with the exception, of course, of 1844 in the sanctuary, which Wilcox actually made far more prominent than Uriah Smith had. Much of the 
other business in Dallas centered around electing leaders and approving revisions to the church manual. And I suspect that's why Walter Beach was interested in talking about the manual in his series of articles because he knew there was going to be a lot of revisions for the manual, and uh, he wanted to explain why the manual was so important. Now, revising the church manual had been no easy task. It was a sacred tradition because you remember um, – the manual was described, Beach described the manual as this kind of distillation of the church's wisdom. Remember that polity and practice things? Like we get questions, we, we, we face challenges in our local churches, we figure out how to deal with it. That wisdom ultimately made its way into the church manual. And so the church manual is this, this beautiful document of, of Adventist tradition in, uh, in the nicest sense of that word. And so that's why the, it's so important. You don't just revise that document willy-nilly. Now, in 1970, the secretary of the church manual committee thought the manual was a it's, – it's really just a mess because it was just a bunch of um, – I guess there was no organization really. Nobody had read through it and said, we need to organize all this in a systematic way according to the topic and all that kind of stuff. It was just a, some sections got more attention than others and it didn't really play really nicely together. Um and so the secretary of the church manual committee thought it needed some revision. But because of a 1946 vote, the church manual committee couldn't even fix a typo without approval from the general conference in session. And you can imagine uh, that would require <laughs> that would require some serious work. I mean, you've got to get the conference in session and then tell it, uh, make the case really that we're going to spend a good chunk of our time revising the church manual rather than voting on other things, right? Now, the church manual, the committee secretary had made it clear, quote, it was never intended that every word in the church manual should be set in eternal cement, unchangeable, except by vote of such a body as this, end quote. And this was an uphill battle. But by the 1975 general conference session in Vienna, well, the manual was given a sizable update, but not everything was uh, was completed, and many issues were put off until 1980, including the list of fundamental beliefs in the manual. They didn't touch those in Vienna, but they knew they wanted to. So the secretary of the church manual committee had told the delegates in Vienna that there were three theological statements in the manual, and they needed to be harmonized. You had the list of fundamental beliefs, and I think you had some things uh, they told the pastor when you're baptizing somebody, you know, here are these theological things, uh, points that they need to agree with, uh, and then there was something else. But these three statements that weren't, weren't aligned, when you added them up, it, it really didn't explain like why are certain things being required of a baptismal candidate that aren't in our fundamental beliefs and, and so forth. So there needed to be some revision here. And there was a no guarantee that anything would ever happen, even if they had said after 1975, yeah, we got to work on that. Uh, because, you know, updating the fundamental beliefs wasn't being done by a group of theologians, but by the church manual committee in the interest of uh, just, I guess, of organization, of smoothing things over. And that's what is still so incredible to me that even in 1980, this is a church manual problem. The fundamental beliefs are a church manual problem, not a theological issue, not a special committee that studies Adventist theology and is ready to formulate these beliefs. No, it's a church manual committee problem. Now, a super special committee was set up with the awesome name of the X1535 committee. But don't say that out loud because Elon Musk might name his next kid X1535. 
Anyways, by, the, by August of 1979, a new draft of fundamental beliefs was being passed around for review by this X1535 committee or 1535 committee. Uh, Duncan Eva, who was chair of the church manual committee at that time, described how the section on the Trinity had doubled in size and beliefs were added about angels and the importance of education, among other things. Eva then took it to the seminary in September 1979. Uh, I think it was probably mailed out, I want to say, the in, in August, but he met with the theologians at the seminary in September of 1979 and wanted the theologians there to make their comments. You know, you guys got any counsel for us on this? After that, it would be taken to the general conference officers, the union presidents, and uh, in the annual council, which is the, the semi-annual meeting of the general conference committee. Well, annual council is the fall and the spring meeting is the, is the spring. And then uh, after it gets through annual council, it would go on the agenda for the session in Dallas. And all of this was to happen in eight months. Okay, keep this in mind. They, they get this, they get a draft that they're passing around in August 1979. I just want to repeat this so you understand how insane this is. They wanted to offer it to the theologians at Andrews to make their comments. Then it would be taken to the general conference officers, then the union presidents, then the annual council meeting in October, I think it was, in uh, 1979. And once it passes annual council, it'd be put on the session uh, for Dallas, which was, you know, uh, what I want to say, six months away or so. So a lot of that is going to happen in the first two months. The general conference officers, the union presidents, the theologians, all in about two months. They've got, a, they've got two months to look through this and, uh, and give some feedback. The seminary professors, however, did not just make notes. They rewrote the entire document. The seminary version then became the basis for what was passed on to the general conference and ultimately voted on in Dallas because they did such a, a I guess, a, they did a good job. And so the church manual committee says, yeah, we like what you did. Let's, uh, let's work with this one. Basically, the seminary professors didn't think the church manual committee was being bold enough. They were just kind of updating what Wilcox had done and adding a bunch of other beliefs, but it's like, where's the balance in this? Uh, it's, they were uneven in the words they were being, that were being used. They weren't necessarily theologically-minded words, wasn't well-organized, and it reflected what one person called, quote, a general administrative concern with events and behavior rather than meaning, end quote. Larry Garrity drafted Fundamental Belief number 6 called Creation. Ivan Blazin wrote The Belief on Christ in the Heavenly Sanctuary, Fritz Guy wrote the section on the Trinity. A committee of 12 professors ended up rewriting that entire document, I think, in about a week. Now, one leader from the GC wasn't happy with how the creation belief was worded and basically told the professors, word it however you want, but we will change it when we get back to GC. However, it was mostly a positive affair, even if the seminary had very little time to take a crack at it. Now, if you think about it, they could have written 10 fundamental beliefs. Or 50. What really is fundamental about these beliefs after all? There's no fundamental belief on forgiveness, for instance, which I think could be considered for any list on the most basic elements of Christianity. Isn't that a fundamental aspect of Christian theology? It seems that the theologians and the church manual committee were leaning on Wilcox's list of 22 beliefs and Uriah Smith's list of 25 beliefs back in 1872 
As much as the seminary theologians wanted the committee to be bolder, no one seems to have seen their mandate as starting from scratch. They were only modifying what had been handed down to them since 1872. It's incredible. Uriah Smith certainly, I have no intention that his little tract on what Adventists believe would become the basis for a quasi-creed later on, which is basically what the 27 fundamental beliefs have become. Smith made this very clear with the first words in his tract, quote, in presenting to the public this synopsis of our faith, we wish to have it distinctly understood that we have no articles of faith, creed, or discipline aside from the Bible. We do not put forth this, it means the tract, as having any authority with our people, nor is it designed to secure uniformity among them as a system of faith, but is a brief statement of what is and has been with great unanimity held by them, end quote. In other words, hey guys, here's what I know the vast majority of Adventists believe. I'm the editor of the review. I know a lot of these guys, right? I've met a lot of church members. I know what they believe. But don't treat this list of beliefs as if it has some kind of authority among Adventists, as if you can wave it in someone's face and say, well, you don't believe number 14, therefore you're not a true Adventist. Smith says, I, I didn't design it for that. I didn't design it for that. It's not, a, it's not to secure uniformity. It's not, it's, this is not a document that's designed to say, this is what an Adventist believes, believe this or get lost. It's not a system of faith. It is just a brief statement, he says, a description, not a prescription of what Adventists believe. Now, there were other lists of beliefs that came up throughout the years, okay, including some by Wilcox. He had tinkered around with these this for a long time. But I think the very act of including Wilcox's latest effort in the church manual, and again, this isn't the first time a list of fundamental beliefs has been included in the General Conference publication. Like I said, the yearbook had lists of, of fundamental beliefs for a long time uh, before that point. But I do think it helped transform those beliefs into something more creedal, something that would have horrified Uriah Smith. There has never been a gathering of Adventists. This is the truly astounding thing, my friends. There has never been a gathering of Adventists to define their theological beliefs from scratch. Unless you want to talk about certain doctrines in the Bible conferences in the 1840s and, and so forth, there have been moments where it's like, what do we believe about this subject? Let's gather together and talk about it and study Certainly, but, but but never a moment where it's like, hey, the, the pioneers didn't gather together and say, what do we believe about the Trinity? Right? They, they took whatever inherited beliefs they had on that subject with them for a long time and, uh, you know, died with those beliefs. We didn't sit out and say, all right, let's just clean the slate. What is it that we believe? And to be honest, this is not so surprising. Like what other church has done that, right? The early Christian church didn't do that either. The Catholic Church didn't do that. The Lutherans didn't do that. Nobody starts with a blank slate. We all start with something that we believe to be true, and then there's some modification or innovation after that point. And, and so I'm not trying to hold the early Adventist to a standard that no other group of Christians has ever been able to reach. I'm just saying it's incredible to me that you know even the Lutherans and the and the Catholics like they have their creeds and their statements of faith and all these sort of things that pop up over time they feel we need to clarify what we believe because we're facing this or that but Adventists never never an official statement where they gathered some theologians or whatever and let's study and uh, and and let's formulate some beliefs so that we can be a theologically unified people uh, around this statement or whatever this is in fact the opposite of what Adventists wanted and so 
the fundamental beliefs that Seventh-day Adventists have today, there's 28 of them now, are all really just updates of, of Uriah Smith's 1872 beliefs. The ones he just worked on wherever it is that he worked on. Just a personal list of, yeah, this is what I think Adventists believe. That's it. Wilcox edited that, updated that. 1980 General Conference session updated what Wilcox had done. It all started because one dude <laughs> just wrote a tract in 1872, published a tract in 1872. And that, that is what's so incredible to me is there's never been a moment where we gathered scholars or we gathered administrators or whatever, lay members, and said, let's come out with a list of beliefs. What should be on this list? You know, let's, let's rethink things. Let's put things in, in context. You know, maybe the first so many beliefs are basic Christian things. Then we go into our Adventist beliefs, you know, after that. Never. Which is why if you're looking at the 28 fundamental beliefs today as a, as a kind of a encapsulation of all of Adventist theology, it's not. It's incomplete. There's plenty of essential gospel things that aren't on there. And it's not because Adventists don't believe in the gospel. It's just because of how this list was formulated. Our doctrinal statement today, the 27 fundamental beliefs that became the 28 fundamental beliefs have been built on the work of one guy who was trying to be helpful and publish what he thought Adventists believed. The fact that we only have 27 fundamental beliefs in 1980 illustrates this well. With Smith having 22 fundamental beliefs, at least at first, Wilcox having 25, it's clearly suggestive that settling on 27 fundamental beliefs is not indicative of a radical rethink. Clearly, clearly, this suggests that the goal was to remain in the same ballpark, 22, 25, 27, somewhere in there. That's where we should end up. In fact, Fritz Kite later called the number 27, quote, a fairly arbitrary initiative of mine. We could have come out with 26, 28, but I preferred 27. 26 seemed to me to be a dull, uninteresting number. 28 seemed better because it was four times seven, the arithmetical product of two numbers prominent in the book of Revelation. But 27 seemed more interesting still. It was three to the third power, three times three times three. Given the importance of the Trinity and the two, threefold praise of the angels, holy, 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 the other numbers didn't have a chance, 27 it would be, end quote. While 27 is therefore a theologically meaningful number, clearly the theologians who were rewriting these fundamental beliefs in the fall of 1979 didn't see themselves as, as having the mandate to just start from scratch, right? They were just modifying what already existed, and they're like, well, okay, where do we want to settle? Should it be 25? Should it be 27? So Should it be 28? It wasn't that, okay, let's look at what beliefs are truly fundamental, and let's include only those. No, it was, it was arbitrary. Where do we want to end up? Okay, well, let's try and massage this so we have uh, the number of beliefs that end at, uh, at whatever number we want. It's incredible. Again, and it's not that other churches write such statements from scratch, and we're the only ones who haven't. No one writes it from scratch, as George Knight often says. We all do theology against our neighbor, or at least with our neighbor in mind. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, for instance, came after a period of persecution when different Baptist groups were seeking unity with each other. The Nicene Creed, of course, was a reaction to Arianism. Likewise, you can guess which fundamental belief the seminary professors spent the most time on 
believe 23, Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Why? Well, because they understood that Ford and Brinsmead and others were raising questions about that doctrine, and they would need to think carefully about how they word this belief in light of that theological controversy. Now, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that theological positions and conflicts go together, because sometimes controversy forces churches to study subjects they wouldn't have considered before. Let's just say there are far more books published about the sanctuary because of critics than otherwise. When people criticize, it forces people to get together and say, okay, let's defend that belief. Why do we really believe this? And then we get all sorts of books as a result. And the fundamental beliefs need to be understood not as pure Bible study, but as a reaction to other beliefs out there. And we're going to see this when, uh, you know, when we get to the floor of the General Conference session in 1980, where delegates were interested in tweaking the fundamental beliefs, not to better reflect biblical terms or biblical ideas per se, but to differentiate Adventists from other Christians. More on that in a minute. So the fundamental beliefs need to be understood in terms of what they are reacting against, just like every other confessional statement in Christian history. But they also need to be understood as an attempt at consensus theology, which is always different from personal theology. As Fritz Guy would later say, quote, we were trying to be both descriptive, expressing beliefs of our community of faith, and instructive, leading the community of faith to greater perception and clarity. Had we been writing our own personal statements of belief, each of us would have written something differently, end quote. We might ask then, who are we trying to build consensus with? Who are you not trying to build consensus with? Who are you okay? Who are you happy to exclude? When you're trying to build consensus, you tend to focus on the least common denominators, what we can all agree on, despite our particular preferences. Now, this desire to be descriptive was certainly Uriah Smith's goal as well. But the notion of this statement being instructive was new. It didn't merely teach what Adventists believed, but endeavored to clarify those beliefs. In other words, to, to make a case for those beliefs. That's not quite the same as saying that this is what all Adventists should believe. It wasn't, technically speaking, it wasn't prescriptive, like everybody needs to believe this. It was, it was only, you know, hey, I've seen a lot of different ways of explaining the Sabbath out there. Let us theologians try to explain it in a concise, clear way so that people can say, oh yeah, that's what I believe. That's a great way of putting it. But nevertheless, it was an irrevocable step in that direction. They may not have intended for these beliefs to be prescriptive, but that's where we are. At annual council in the autumn of 1979, it was voted that, quote, the minister's work is not completed until he has thoroughly instructed the candidates, talking about baptism, and they are familiar with and committed to all the fundamental beliefs and related practices of the church, end quote. In other words, if you want to be a baptized member of the church, you have to agree to these 27 fundamental beliefs. The 27 fundamental beliefs from the seminary were slightly modified by annual council in October 1979, which was, of course, a, a fateful month in Adventist history, as we'll talk about in a couple of episodes. The seminary had recommended that they be published in the Adventist Review, that the fundamental beliefs be published in the Adventist Review, give the Adventist public an opportunity to weigh in on what their thoughts are. For some reason, however, the beliefs were not published for four months 
until February 21, 1980, which is just weeks, less than two months before the general conference session. They were printed in full, and Duncan Eva beseeched readers to send him their thoughts. And since delegates to the April general conference session were supposed to get the final form of the 27 fundamental beliefs in their hands about six weeks ahead of the session, that was the goal, to mail them out at that point, then that meant readers of the review only had about two weeks to read through the list of 27 fundamental beliefs and send in their suggestions for any changes they wanted to see made. Two weeks for the church to respond. Duncan Eva ended up meeting with the seminary professors again on March 9th, which was about two weeks after it appeared in the review. And uh, after some further revisions, it ended up being 28 fundamental beliefs. But there was some frustration with how the sanctuary belief had been revised. So on March 10th, the next day, Eva ordered the professors to change it back to the original seminary version that they had arrived at last September or October. And the next day, March 11th, the document was mailed out to the delegates. Now, it was in all likelihood too late to be particularly useful for many delegates who were traveling from overseas. Uh, one member at Andrews didn't receive his delegate letter until March 24th, almost two weeks after it was mailed out. So if somebody in the States, it, it almost took two weeks to reach them in the States, then yeah, if you're overseas and you're a delegate coming to the coming in for the GC session, you, you probably didn't get it. Or if it showed up at all, it was probably at the last second. Again, not a lot of time to consider it, not a lot of time to study it. It didn't matter anyway, because while the document was being mailed, the church manual committee was still revising the fundamental beliefs. The document delegates would end up seeing in Dallas was different from the one in the review and different from the one they may have received even in the mail. Fred Veltman at Pacific Union College took the process seriously and had his department study the fundamental beliefs to offer their thoughts. Some of these thoughts did make some changes in the 27 fundamental beliefs, but Veltman lamented how much, how much time, or I should say how little time, the church had given his department to seriously consider these beliefs. Now, arriving in Dallas, some delegates murmured that the church was scheming to get these beliefs approved with as little scrutiny as possible. And you can certainly understand why some people, both conservative and maybe non-conservative members, might feel that something sneaky was going on here. After all, we had about two weeks to review it in the review. The delegates, many of them may not have even gotten this document in time. And, uh, you know, well, what happened between annual council and when it appeared in the review? That was the, the big thing, right? The seminary hustled to get it done. It got sent to the GC officers. Apparently, it must have gotten mailed out then to the union uh, leaders as well. It got approved at annual council. That's, again, I think that's October of 1979. Uh and then what? It doesn't appear until February? It, it seemed designed so that members would have as little time as possible to make suggestions and then as little time as possible to get that to the, to the delegates who would be arriving for the session. By the way, the church manual committee had had this document. They've been working on it for over a year. And then suddenly it's rush, rush, rush. Let's get it done. So what changed when the delegates arrived in Dallas? Well, one of the beliefs had doubled in length. Three had been completely rewritten. Someone had cut out the words complete and perfect when describing Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, implying that the atonement was not completed at the cross, which was a clear backing away 
from how Questions on Doctrine had put it. The GC had also combined two of the beliefs, so now there was 27 fundamental beliefs again. And of course, many of these delegates are seeing it for the first time. And by the way, there's only mere days of discussion on these fundamental beliefs before there's a vote. Now, there's no evidence that any conspiracy was afoot. Sometimes things just happen this way, but there seems to be an awful lot of, of uh, I guess, steps or stages in this process where people had very little time to produce what would be a historically impactful document in Adventist history. Historically impactful. People are going to lose their jobs over what, where they fall on these 27 fundamental beliefs, and it seems like nobody has enough time to properly review this and, and get it the way that they want to get it. On April 21, sometime after 3.15 p.m., Neil Wilson walked up to the microphone to tell the delegates in Dallas, for some time we have been considering a refinement of our statement of fundamental beliefs. We have heard a variety of interesting rumors. Some, it is said, understand that the church leaders want to destroy completely the foundations of the church. We have also heard that any time we touch the statement of fundamental beliefs, we would be introducing the omega, the final confusion of theological and doctrinal positions of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, end quote. Wilson denied that there was, quote, something very sinister, mysterious, and secret going on, end quote. That was Wilson's warning to the conservative critics in the church. This is not a conspiracy to introduce some heresy. We're not trying to dismantle the beliefs of the church. There's nothing sinister. There's nothing mysterious. There's no secret. Nothing is wrong here. Now, to the other side of the church, Wilson said, quote, there are others who think they know why this is being done. They believe it is being prepared as a club to batter someone over the head to try and get people into a narrow concept of theology not leaving any opportunity for individual interpretation of prophecy or any individual views with respect to theology, end quote. People thought these beliefs were being articulated to batter someone over the head. I wonder who Neil could be referring to, <laughs> Desmond Ford. Neil also noted that some theologians were worried that these fundamental beliefs would be used to purge the schools of anyone deemed unorthodox that the traditional Adventist openness on theological matters, I know that's a weird combination of words to use to describe Adventists, open in theology. But really, Adventism is really, really open-minded. I mean, they we do have fundamental beliefs, and there are obviously certain non-negotiables theologically, like Saturday is a Sabbath. But there's a lot of other issues where Adventists are really, they just shrug at. <laughs> and, uh, and so some of these critics on the non-conservative side of things said, okay, now you're just trying to articulate um, more theological positions so and, and kind of basically remove our, our liberty to believe whatever we want about those issues. And of course, Neil Wilson says, no, we're not trying to do that at all. He waved his hand. He brushed all of these objections away. He said it would be good to take a look at these beliefs every 20, 30, or 50 years. Language changes, he would argue, and we need to make sure the words we use keep conveying the meaning we intend. And I think, who can argue with that? It's the same reason why we need Bible translations every so often, because language is constantly 
changing. Now, Wilson was very careful to describe the changes, uh, what amounted to a complete, um, really, to a complete rewrite. That's what, it, that's what the 27 fundamental beliefs are. But he called them, you know, minor changes in terminology, rearrangement, rewording, perhaps some restructuring. That's as far as he would go. But despite the fact that these 27 fundamentals were built on Wilcox and were built on Uriah Smith, they, uh, this was not a minor editing. This was not just running spell check on this document or fixing some punctuation or just re rephrasing certain things here. Uh, this is, there's a lot more is going on at that, and it seems like Wilson is downplaying that. Now, Wilson's introduction to this conversation, this, this period of debate over the fundamental beliefs, was basically a long response to critics on both sides. And as soon as he was done, the delegates began discussing the first fundamental belief, the Holy Scriptures. And I thought it'd be fun just to kind of go through how this conversation went, give you an idea of how the rest of it probably went. Okay, so the Holy Scriptures is brought up, that fun first fundamental belief. One delegate immediately objected to the word infallible in reference to the Bible because it makes it sound like Adventists believe in verbal inspiration. Another delegate said it was imperative that the word infallible remains. The first guy said, fine, but let's define what we mean by infallible. Then the question was, well, if we do define what we mean by infallible, should the definition appear in the text itself or in a footnote? Well, one person said a footnote is likely to be overlooked. Another said, we don't really need to define what we mean by infallible. Neil Wilson finally brokered peace by saying, let's leave infallible in the text, let's work on a definition and decide later whether we want to include it in the text or in a footnote. Well, the next debate was over the word historical, whether that should be added to this fundamental belief. Is the Bible infallible in regard to history? What about science? And all of this was just a discussion around the very first fundamental belief. When it came to the belief about Ellen White, Delegates opted to add the word authoritative when describing her writings. Still, a number of people were unhappy with the fundamental beliefs. There was no fundamental beliefs about important spiritual issues like prayer, and some thought the sanctuary belief didn't go far enough to guard against the critiques of Desmond Ford. The X-1535 text on creation, for instance, was much more explicit about countering evolution than the statement that the Andrews scholars came up with at the seminary. It originally read that Genesis, quote, contains the only inspired, reliable chronicle of creation of the world, end quote. Larry Garrity got rid of that when he rewrote that fundamental belief for the seminary. After all, is the book of Psalms not inspired and reliable when it talks about creation? And, hmm, what about Ellen White? The X-1535 version was also a bit of a mess. It brings in the Sabbath, salvation through Christ, and the restoration of the earth, all in a fundamental belief on creation. Do we need to say all of that? Some of the delegates wanted more precise language that distinguished Avenus from not Avenus, as I mentioned earlier. Adding the phrase, six literal days, to the creation belief would do that. This belief was eventually fortified in the 2015 General Conference session, the fundamental belief now says that creation was recent and literal, prompting one delegate in 2015 to ask, why do we need to insert the word recent? Nowhere in the Bible is the date of creation mentioned. We say we are committed to sola scriptura, but in these proposed changes, we suggest otherwise. Are we Protestants or aren't we? End quote. Back to 1980. One pastor made a 12-minute speech saying the whole idea of fundamental beliefs should be tabled. We shouldn't do this in a time of theological strife. 
and the delegates responded by voting to strike this pastor's speech from the record as if it never happened. The evangelist Harold Metcalf spoke up to call the sanctuary belief, quote, one of our fundamental beliefs that ought not to be tampered with, end quote. Again, these beliefs weren't created in a vacuum. Metcalf and others were well aware who they believed was doing the tampering and saw these beliefs as a chance to defend the faith. Others fought back on the word Trinity. They preferred the word Godhead, a word used in the King James Version. The delegates were told that Godhead was not a good translation of the Greek. And anyways, you get the idea. I'm sure this discussion could have gone on and on and on and on and on. But on April 25th, keep in mind, Neil Wilson started this discussion on April 21. So in those days, uh, they had to discuss from 21 to 25. And on April 25th, they, uh, the revised 27 fundamental beliefs were brought before the delegates. And it was overwhelmingly carried and passed. So in the end, we ended up with uh, 27 fundamental beliefs. It's far from perfect. I mean, the, the process is far from perfect. There wasn't enough time for feedback. No women were involved in the uh, process of crafting these beliefs. Adventists who didn't speak English were definitely at a disadvantage when weighing in on the floor of the session. But the church had done something that people, well, many people didn't think was possible. They had looked critically at their fundamental beliefs rewrote them, and got them approved by the delegates. Something new had happened 110 years since Uriah Smith. The passing of these fundamental beliefs were just one more reason why 1980 was such a pivotal year in Adventist history, at least, again, in terms of shaping this modern Adventist church, because now they were, even though these beliefs weren't invented in 1980, they were, they were elevated and now we all are aware of our fundamental beliefs, and they play a, a much greater role in our church. They may not have intended to be prescriptive of what Adventists ought to believe or else, but that's what's happened, and it's all because of 1980. Well, we've dealt with Walter Ray, now the Dallas GC session. We've got Davenport over there on Adventist History Extra. What was that other big thing that happened in 1980? It was on the tip of my tongue. Okay, okay. All right, you've been patient long enough. You win. It's time to talk about Desmond Ford, and it will be the end of the Adventist History Podcast. Hopefully, it won't be the end of my career. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... 
If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.